The Lifestyle Show on RTE Radio 1 Extra. Hello and welcome to The Lifestyle Show with me, Tara Lockery-Grant on RTE Radio 1 Extra. This is the weekly show and podcast where we talk to some of the most inspiring people whose work, programmes and interviews we feature on rte.ie forward slash lifestyle and also in the lifestyle section of the RTE News Now app. The areas that we focus on, living, parenting, finance, fitness, health, food, fashion, travel, careers, motors and much more. And many of those we feature here are household names. Many others should be and will no doubt be as they go about inspiring people in their day-to-day lives. Today we're talking to... I went to a Dutch school. There were eight of us in a three-bed house. The most unlikely thing on the planet is to see somebody like me get to where I am. In my school, when I go back, there's a picture of two people on the wall. One is Joan Burton and the other is me. I'm no spring chicken, but it is tragic that there's no other child on that wall. Yes, it is. The wonderful Nora Casey. She has a very exciting project coming up, which we're going to be talking about. And it's just great to actually have somebody inside talking to us on the week that is International Women's Day. Nora, thank you so much for talking to us. My pleasure. Now, you have a very exciting event, Planet Academy. Tell me, sorry, let me get that name right again. So Planet Woman Academy. Am I right? (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like you're going to beam me up. (laughs) (laughs) So it's on Friday, March 24th. What is it, first of all? Well, I've been doing it for a few years. So the Academy is a fantastic way, I think, of women hearing from other women. Uh, There's nothing more powerful than a story. So you go to conferences and people, you know, it's death by PowerPoint and there's 45 minute speeches. It's nothing like that. It's pioneering a whole new approach where I interview, I think, successful women on the stage and I try and find out how did they get to be where they are. It's the most important thing. So for every woman who stands there as the Tornishta or as the CEO of a publicly listed company, there's another nine who didn't make it. So I try and get to the nub of what was different for them. What happened in their route to success that made them the person they are? There's always a backstory. There's always the most fabulous backstory. When you listen to Caroline Downing, who is uh, a VP at Flextronics, she commutes, believe it or not, from Cork to California every single week. That woman had a baby at 16. She went to school at 23 when her child went to school for the first time. She then graduated at Harvard and she's now one of the top 100 most successful tech women in the world and she's Irish. So when women hear her story, they think, damn, I could do it too. Look where she came from. You know, so I'm a case in point myself. I went to a Dutch school. There were eight of us in a three bed house. You know, the most unlikely thing on the planet is to see somebody like me get to where I am. In my school, when I go back, there's a picture of two people on the wall. One is Joan Burton and the other is me. Now, she might have done a lot better than me in her life, but it's tragic. I'm no spring chicken, but it is tragic that there's no other child on that wall that there's no one else who's made it out of that school. So when people look at me and say, oh, it must have been luck, it's never luck. There's always a backstory. That's well, what it's about. That's why we have you here today. I mean, <laughs> we would look at you. I mean, I've worked in media a while. I'm no spring chicken either, but always I would have looked at your career. Look at you speaking, whether it was on television, whether it was on radio. I mean, you're a broadcaster as well as being the chairwoman for Harmonia, the chair. And you look at all of the things that you've succeeded in doing and you've had, looking in as an outsider, so many tragedy, so many hard times and you always roll up your sleeves. I've read the interviews. I've read where you spoke about your mum and how inspiring she seems to be as a a lady, as a woman. So I'd love to get to know you a little bit more in this chance because you're busy interviewing people the whole time and featuring other people. So just just going back a little bit before we go forward, 
what was it do you think it is in you where did you get where do you get that drive where do you get when did you first set your goals on something beyond at the time what what was a dream so if you asked the younger Nora Casey did she want to be a businesswoman I wouldn't have had a notion there wasn't a single businesswoman in my life I didn't even know they existed I mean there was a woman outside the gates of the park I grew up in the Phoenix Park she was about the closest thing to a businesswoman I'd ever seen in my life you know Um, I think that I grew up in a family you know my father and my grandfather were rangers so we live in a lodge my mother still lives there in the Phoenix Park and and it was full of possibilities. Like, firstly, we were hungry for it. There was no helicopter piloting, you know, parenting in my house. <clears throat> my father used to say to us, you know, he had, a, he had two or three things he said all of the time, but be the best you can was the one he always said. So he never said how much study are you doing or why aren't you in there doing your leave insert, um, you know, studying. And he, But he, what he always said is, you know, whatever you do in your life, Nora, be the best you can. And I've always felt that that was something that stuck with me. Um, naturally, when I left school, he was going on about going to the civil service, get a good job in the bank, um, <laughs> do those exams. And um, and I don't know how I ended up in nursing. I really don't. I grew up virtually in Dublin Zoo. If you'd asked me, I would have said I was going to be a vet. I loved animals. When I left school initially, um, I was only 16. I was one of those kids who kind of maybe I got kicked out at three because there were so many of us. But um, I was only 16 when I did my leaving cert. So I spent that year looking after baby gorillas, two of them in, in Dublin Zoo yeah. and happiest time of my life. And and then by chance, because my father's friend um, was in Parkade Street and his daughter had fallen in love with a policeman from Scotland and she was working in a hospital in Loch Lomond and he gave me the brochure and the rest is kind of history about me floating down the lovely wards in Loch Lomond with my broader Anglais hat on. <laughs> I, I was a good nurse, though. Um, I think I was a really good nurse. I'll tell you, it's the strongest foundation for your life. And something happened to me, which I think set me apart. Right. So it's the most extraordinary thing. And I say it to women all the time. It's always confidence, not competence, that hold women back. So I was terrified of meeting a Burns victim. I was in a tiny hospital, six wards up in Loch Lomond. We met all sorts of road traffic accidents. I was happy, you know, meeting all of those, you know, head on as a young student nurse. But a Burns victim just left me terrified. And instead of running for the hills, which is, of course, what I should have done, I went off to Bangar in Edinburgh and I studied Burns and plastic surgery for a year. And it was the makings of me, but the undoings of me in terms of my career in nursing. I I did confront all of my fears in the most graphic possible way. I can't tell you about the horror of being in a, a children's ward where, you know, all of their siblings have passed away in the fire, including their parents or seeing massively disfigured teenagers, you know, in the clinic where they'd had multiple suicide attempts and God. people would tell them they're beautiful on the inside. And, you know, if my teenager has a pimple, he thinks he's deformed. These children were um, were very scarred. So at the end of that year, I did feel different. I felt I had done something that was very important to me, um, but I felt I couldn't be a nurse for the rest of my life. So it was, you know, I I still think that that core inner um, ability to take a risk, to still the voices that always tell you not to do something, it's something that's always stayed with me. And a lot of women don't get to do that. They're afraid to go for the next job. They're afraid to confront. Why are we? It's ingrained in us. Um, there's there's something in the brains of women. Signed, I'm a total geek. Anyone who knows me, you know, the, and follows my MPhil and my world in academia. I could easily have stayed in academia. I was at the University of Wales doing a PhD. And I, 
myself, the question that I've asked myself all my life, you know, just to fast forward that going from a nurse to a journalist at 29, I was running my first business. Um, so I was at a time when it's called the decade of indulgence in the 20s when you're supposed to be all about yes. me, 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 and you don't care about pensions or mortgages and it's before you settle down. I didn't get that. I was working four or five jobs. I, you know, did print journalism, went off to Ealing to do uh, TV production and direction. I learned radio with the BBC in Hull um, from Peter White from Does He Take Sugar fame. I was working at Sky at the weekends. <clears throat> when I say I was driven, you've never met anybody more driven than me. Um, I was determined and ambitious to get on, not for money. I have always, I say it to young people all the time, if you set out to say I want to make a million, you never will. I was ambitious to kind of further my mind and to, you know, get on with things that I felt partly I loved and I wanted to succeed at. So, Nora, I know that you know the answer to this. Was it something to do with when you were training that year away studying with the burn victim? What was it that made you think, right, I'm grabbing every single opportunity with two hands? Did you have that before that stage or was it after that where you said one life? after that. Yeah. Definitely after that. It changed me forever. And, you know, every time I thought of um, nursing changed me forever, because if I thought of going for that job, which a lot of women would say I'm not qualified for, even though they're immensely qualified for it. And men would say, sure, I'll throw my hat in the ring. That's you know? it. Lots of studies in that space. Um, I never thought about what's the worst that could happen, because if you've been a nurse and you've been in a situation where you could potentially not um not preserve the life of somebody, you know, because you're the only person between them and, and life when you're doing cardiac massage. When you've been in that situation, nothing ever, ever is going to phase you. So I was always happy to sort of put myself forward and say, what's the worst that could happen? Yes, they'd say no. Um, maybe I won't get the job. Maybe my colleagues will laugh about me. But at the end of the day, like if I don't do it, I used to have this little thing. It's still on my fridge. It's not the things you do in life you regret. It's the things you don't I do. I love that. Now, everyone knows that quote. Yeah. But it was a revelation to me in my 20s. It was kind of I kept looking at it and thinking, God almighty, that's true. I need to write. I need to get one of those magnets for yeah, the but, fridge. But, yeah. but it's so cliched now. I look at it and say, you know, it is a cliche. But but at the time, I just kept thinking, that's so true. Cliches are cliches for a reason. Yeah, exactly. they, they work. They're real. <laughs> yes. But I, I'm hearing my mum's a nurse. So some of that mentality yeah. that she has is absolutely wonderful. So then at that stage, you kept going. The study, you had four or five. What about at that stage, personal life, travel? Did you just say, I'm, I'm loving what I'm doing? Yeah, I'm loving what I'm doing. That's the absolute truth. I was known as the five to niner. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Really? I'm yeah. telling you, I had no life. Um, you know, at one point now, given that I was in my 20s in London, um, I gave up drink for, you know, the guts of a year because it was interfering with my ability to get wow. up at five o'clock. I know I'm laughing at myself. My <laughs> I am laughing at myself because I kind of think I it was the most crazy period of my life because I then when I became a CEO, the interesting thing about being a very young CEO and having lots of people who are older than me and it was a big company and I made all these classic mistakes in the first few months. I wanted to be liked, you know. Then I realised all the staff ganged up on me (laughs) because I didn't fire somebody who wasn't doing his job and everyone else was doing the job for him. And I was like, oh, I'm not going to be not liked by making that decision. They all came into my office and said, here, come here. We're doing his job. He's turning up late. So I I learned an awful lot in the first few months about how not to do something. So I took myself off to Ashridge Management College and I studied strategic management um, for a couple of years and went back. I got so good at looking into the future. I went back and did advanced strategic management. But that is this all while working. Yes. Oh my God. 
Yes. Um, I. But what I do think about that is um, the one thing that my father and mother always gave me is if you don't know it, learn it. Yeah. Right. So I never there's a total difference between foolhardiness and taking risks. If I think so, for instance, leaving nursing was a huge decision. I wasn't afraid. I was 23 and I said, you know what? I'm still young. Yes. I went in to do journalism as a postgrad. I was the older person there. I was with a bunch of kids. Right. So I still stuck with it. And, you know, every time where, I did Where did you do that? Sorry I did it in Harlow. Okay. So there was at the time there were only four centres for the training of journalists in the UK. So it was Harlow, Cardiff, Sheffield and I think Glasgow. Um, so the... And it was the old kind of indentured, you know, way of doing it, you know, where you had to, I don't know if they still do tea line 100 words a minute. Oh, my God, I took that test five or six times. My hand used to shake every time I sat down to do it. But I can still do shorthand. Great. Um, I think that... Um, it depends where you go, but no, most of them are not doing it anymore. No, yeah. I know. Yeah. Um, but I think that I've always believed that if I wanted to do something, I should actually... Go and study it first. Um, now, fine, I, I threw myself into the ring to be CEO when I wasn't in the slightest bit prepared for it. But I did realise very quickly I needed to go off and learn. So the whole of my 20s, you know, bear in mind, I was going from one college to the other, studying various, various things. I think straight after Ashridge, I was doing my MPhil. Um, in my own time as well. So I had a great supervisor in Wales that uh, I went over to Cardiff once a month to him and sweated over statistician stuff. And um, But, uh, you know, to me, my brain was like a massive sponge and I couldn't wait to fill it with stuff. And And I guess the joy for me was, you know, learning things that I was desperately eager to know, finding out the answer to questions. You know, my, my MPhil and PhD was on, you know, what's the most powerful way that people can retain information? It was a question that I always asked myself. You know, in fact, it's talking one to one like you and me yeah. um, and all of those people who are listening, it diminishes the further, you know, you go out in terms of the crowds that are listening to you. I, of course, always believed it would be writing, which came a poor third, unfortunately. Yes. Um, so I do think that I was um, I was courageous in terms of putting myself forward for things. I wasn't afraid of failing, which I did many times. Uh, did you? you? Oh, stop. You know, I once stapled condoms to the cover of a magazine. <laughs> <laughs> I caused terror alerts in Northern Ireland through a classified ad campaign where I sent them blank tapes. I thought it was really clever until Scotland Yard called me. Four <laughs> hospitals closed down. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, I've made spectacular mistakes. If I was ever to, you know, spend time doing an interview, I'd say it would take me days and days to talk about all the things I got wrong. Well, we I would be very happy to schedule that in. Tara, let me tell you, <laughs> nature's harshest but best teacher in life. And I always think, like, you grow up, I didn't grow up in this environment, but a lot of people grow up where it's always succeed. You know, pass your exams, do well, get that job, you know, meet the right person in your life. And then they get into their 20s and something goes wrong and they fall apart. Yes. Because failure is just not something that we're raised to feel comfortable with. And yet it's this powerful bit of learning where if everything went right, I'd never have learned anything in my life ever, including all of the failed businesses I've invested in. And by the way, there were many that I would have been happier putting the money down the toilet. Yeah. I would have had more satisfaction than the heartache I went through trying to work with them. But it's the honesty of saying that. That's what we need to hear. Because you, like you're saying, with the women that you're interviewing and that you interviewed Planet Academy, we need to hear the stories, the failures as well as the successes. Because how totally. can we learn? And also people are so uncomfortable. They, you know, I, I grew up in a world 
where people didn't talk about failure. Now every business person is trying to shove each other out of the way to say, no, I failed <laughs> more than you. I've But actually, they never tell you the truth. Yeah. When people look back over, how did you get to be the CEO of that huge big company? They want to tell you this glamorous route to success. They don't want to tell you all the times they cried in the toilets or how terrified they were to face that interview or how hard it was when all their colleagues were backbiting about them, how they sat awake all night making up pros and cons of whether or not they could do it and also have, you know, children and a life. And so no one tells you the truth. The day a sick child, you've a choice, a sick yes. child or a boardroom presentation yeah. that's going to change your career. Those moments, yes. the honesty. No of one that. tells you. You know, I remember walking into a boardroom, the only woman, and it was five past eight in the morning. The meeting had started at eight o'clock. I had gone through hoops to try and get my child to the nursery at eight o'clock. It opened at eight. I was standing there outside at ten to eight. At eight o'clock, passed my child over, raced up, ran into the room, and the chairman turned around to me and said, you're five minutes late. And I said, lads, do you know what I'm just short of? Having a wife. Wow. And I sat down. Did so, you? But, you know, yeah. I know that was a black mark against yeah. me. Yeah. And that was like, yeah. you know... The same feeling you get when it's a quarter past five in the afternoon, there's a crisis going on in your office. Um, it's, you know, everyone, all hands to the deck and you're looking at your watch continually saying, oh, my God, I have to get there. I have to get my child out. And much worse than the being late <laughs> is is you know, the, the, the five right. euro fine, fine for every minute. Not that it's it's that look on your child's face of being the last one there. Yeah. I mean, it's a terrible feeling. It's a constant feeling of guilt. And people are always saying, you know, can women have it all? Well, men can't have it all either. Yeah. You know, so I meet many men later in life who regret the fact they missed their children's upbringing, often on second marriages and pretty determined they're not going to, you know, miss out on the second round of children. I'll tell you something, a secret. So, you know, I told you I was obsessed with questions and I guess having gone around the country, I've helped over a thousand women who have started their own businesses, women in corporate life, which is probably where I started myself. And I was always saying, why is it? You know, that Mary and John can arrive in a company on the same day with the same qualifications and John will be some 10 times more likely, actually, to get to the corner office in the sky, whereas Mary is more likely to leave. It, I obsessed about yeah. it. And a couple of years ago, I brought together a group of researchers and I said, look, let's debunk all the rubbish that's written. And there is rubbish written about female styles and male styles and whether we can park cars differently to men. Yeah. There's just a big pile of nonsense, subjective nonsense written. And being an academic, I said, let's get to the nub scientifically. What's the difference between women and men that holds women back? Now, I can't change society. I can't change those issues around parenting and family-friendly policies. But often it's the woman herself that holds herself back. So I found only four differences. They're the plank of everything I do now. These four differences. And they're scientifically proven. There's robust research behind them. All those things I was saying, like the behavioural studies that show that women won't speak up in meetings, they feel uncomfortable sharing their opinions, they won't go for jobs, they won't ask for salary rises. So these things stem from those four differences. If I lined up the brains of men and women, you know, not that I would, but if I did, <laughs> the most famous neurosurgeons in the world wouldn't be able to tell the difference. So we're as alike as we are, you know, we're more alike than anything else, except for two areas of the brain. So one is called the rumination centre. So in women, this is uh, uh, the scientific phrase, that lights up more readily to negative stimuli than it does in men. So in other words, if you say something negative to a woman, she will dwell on it for much longer than a man will. Yeah. They'll dust themselves down and get back in the ring. But women can spend months, sleepless nights, days and days worrying about something that is either perceived 
or isn't perceived. So, so this need to ruminate is perceived as something that's quite negative to her in her personal life. Sometimes in work, you know, I'll talk to a guy who's mentoring a woman. He said she's still banging on about something the chairman said six months ago in the boardroom. She will not move on. But there's a positive to that for women because it goes back to my thing about failure. Because women have that ability to dissect something that happened in the past, they're actually very good at looking at things that go wrong. You know, they can dissect them. They can look at it from different angles. But it irritates the hell out of men. They do not want to. They talk about failure, but they don't want to think about it. It's like I have sat so many times in a room with uh, a group of businessmen and I'm still talking about something that went wrong two weeks ago. Would you leave it alone, Nora? Move on. It's done. It's done. We're not discussing it. So part of, I think, the issue in corporate life and, you know, what happened to us in terms of the recession is because we didn't have that level of thinking. You know, there are things going wrong. Let's analyze it. That is and amazing. The, this is the first time I've seen a positive <laughs> to that rumination. It's totally positive. And then in the other area is called the Worrywart Centre. So way back in the hunter-gatherer era, firstly, I should say that Mother Nature's great at getting rid of things we don't need. 30% of us don't have wisdom teeth anymore because we don't need them. And we don't need the expense of getting them out. But unfortunately for women, we have this that dates back to the hunter-gatherer period and we keep using it. So way back in the hunter-gatherer period, the men went out and they searched for wild animals to kill. The women got up into the high ground and they watched for danger. So they have this internal, you know, sort of danger radar, which is really, really good and really, really bad. So if you say to a woman, go for that job, she'll say, I might be terrible at it. She'll make uniquely women do lists of pros and cons, by the way. So they sit around saying, oh, my God, there could be an earthquake. What if Johnny needs to, you know, be taken out of the crash? I might be terrible at it. I might be terrible at the previous one. People might laugh at me. So women worry about things that don't happen, that might happen, that are perceived in their minds that might happen. Now, I'll tell you something amazing about that is it is a fantastic skill. When Christian Lagarde said we should have had more Lehman sisters than Lehman brothers, what she meant was women are more risk averse than men. They will not jump headlong into another strategy or a big new um, a big new development in the business. They will think about it and they look at it from every which way, which is this worry wart ability. But unfortunately, it's also something that's not valued in corporate life. You know, they don't really want to sit there with somebody pouring a bucket of cold water on the chairman's grand new plan for extending the company. Now, where this particular skill is used, women excel. So there's no surprise that there are more women at the top of the legal profession in Ireland than men. So almost every senior job in law, because law is one of those areas where you're required to predict, to worry, to weigh up, to do risk assessment. No surprise that most women who do well in Ireland do it through the finance route. Because in an area like finance and accountancy, it is almost your job to pour buckets of cold water on everything, to look at it from every single angle. In technology, when you're looking for logic. So in the areas with this particular skill, women do phenomenally well. In other areas, it's the corporate world that doesn't recognise that skill, that gets irritated by it. But those two, I think, single-handedly, almost all the behavioural studies you see about women 
um, they date back to those two differences in the brain. They appear quite small when you're going through school, but once you get into the workplace and corporate life, they're quite big. You weren't lying when you said a secret. Why do we not all know this? Why is this not big news? And or what can we do to make it more? Yes, you can do what you're doing, which is spreading the word, which is inviting women together and to talk about this. No doubt you will yes. be talking about this. And, and the one thing I should say is there are four secrets. I've told you two. Yeah, and, I was about to say. As a good businesswoman, you have to come along ah, to the Academy <laughs> on March 24th at the Ordias <laughs> to find the other two, yeah, which yeah. are phenomenal. I mean, whenever I talk about the other two, I can hear men go, oh, my God, that explains everything. Because this isn't about women. I've never thought, and I mean, we have a great men's panel on the Academy, um, which I've, you know, I've never felt that this is about a gender issue. If I go into businesses, I say, do you know what? You're doing phenomenally well on one wing. You've got brilliant men working there to make your business successful. Wouldn't you want the other wing to be flapping too? Talking of which, I saw the male speakers. Do you want to talk us through some of your speakers that you have at Planet, Planet Woman Academy? I think they're all different. So Frances Fitzgerald, the Tornishta, I have uh, interviewed Frances a number of times. She's a phenomenal woman in that she's a similar professional background to me coming through the social work route. So, you know, and I do think, you know, I'd like to think in my lifetime we'll have a female uh, Taoiseach. We only seem yes. to be discussing at the moment the two men and not the phenomenal women that we have actually um, in government. So I do think think that it's fascinating for me. There's so few. We have lower than sub-Sahara Africa in terms of participation of women in politics. That's ridiculous. So, in fact, you know, Enda Kenny last December, I heard him. He said, I will make my cabinet 50-50 women and men. We have less women than men than we did in the last government. So even though we've got more women TDs. Yes. um, So I think that for me... um, Talking to somebody like uh, Francis, I'm apolitical. I'm as comfortable and have interviewed uh, Joan Burton and uh, Mary Harney and people from all sorts of different walks of life. So I'm, I'm comfortable talking to anyone once I can find out how did you get to be where you are? It's, you know, when I talk about failing at interview, imagine if you fail in an election. Yes. How devastating is that to dust yourself down when the whole world knows that you've actually not achieved what you should? Um, I have also got... Um, the wonderful Louise Phelan, who runs PayPal, an, another phenomenal woman. Yeah. Um, and also similar backgrounds to me. You know, these are people who, you know, they didn't get silver spoons, icing on the cake. You know, they're not Harvard graduates, but they're people that really worked hard to be where they are. There's an amazing woman who at 17 took over her family waste business in the UK, Jacqueline O'Donovan. Um, I've wanted to interview her for ages. She's really well known in London, which is what tends to happen when it's, Irish people go away. It's you know. fascinating. <laughs> I saw a lot of the yes. people on your, I looked them up and saw yeah. these are amazing women who are famous inter- yes. internationally. Yeah, really famous. Um, on the men's side, Tony O'Brien from HSE, Richard Bradley from Boots, um, Mark Ryan. And I think that, you know, for me, I firmly believe in he for she. I need good men and there are plenty of good men who will stand up next to women and say, I'll fight for you. Because at the end of the day, you know, we have we're in the lower quartile of women's participation in business at the highest level. Now, I don't whinge about it. I don't want to appear at another negative event where people just talk about the bad stats. I want to be positive and say, let's change it. I do think that I have found a unique ability to change women. And it's not for women who are on the career ladder. It's for the ones who don't even know where to find the ladder. Yes. 
Like, it's really not for those on the ladder, you know. And, and people are always saying, oh, women, when they get to the top, they pull the ladder up. That's not my experience. No. You know, almost all of the women who've, you know, worked with me on the academy, um, they've all been people who have been prepared to work above and beyond the call of duty in their spare time to help other young women to get to where they are. So I, I do think it's a complete fallacy. Um, when you think about the kind of calibre of people that I have had on that stage who have been honest and open about how they got there and have shared their secrets about, you know, how they actually face going into a boardroom on their own. I mean, I've done all of that. But, you know, if you're a young woman and you're sitting there and you've been to four meetings with the boss and you haven't been able to open your mouth, it's kind of nice to look at this enormous, you know, iconic woman and say, wow, she went through exactly the same as me, you know. It, of course it is. And the, as you said about the he for she, when it's, and you also mentioned about boardrooms and, and business places where they're, they're flying on one wing, having very yeah. much male dominated. For the men who do support, and it's equality you know, we're looking for, uh, and supporting the great work that's being done by women, it's such a win because yeah. they have the male support already, obviously. But to have the female support, they're flying in both. Exactly. And I think interspersed in the day that the theme for the academy is storytelling. So when I was doing my PhD way back in those days, Oxford had just begun to look at the power of storytelling. At the time, it was all about, you know, quantitative research, the boring thing of, you know, ticking boxes. But actually, stories are the most powerful way that we can share experiences. Swapping stories is one of the so, you know, when you walk away from a big speech or somebody on TV, you often only remember that little anecdote, you know. I remember one of the women um, the last time was saying she worked for one of the banks. She said she got into the lift one day. Her boss was there and he says, how are you doing? And she stuttered and stammered her way through defending her particular area of the bank. And a few weeks later got in and one of her male colleagues got in and he said, how are you doing? And your man said, I'm doing grand. But you know what? That hedge fund department could do with. And he started talking about another part of the bank oh, yeah. that he wanted to work in. So naturally, about a month later, the boss is saying, geez, I met this fine young fellow in the lift who told me some really insightful things about, you know, that let's let's look at him for the wow. head of that department. So I think sometimes you can through that story, you can sometimes think, wow, I know exactly what I need to do to change my behaviour. I remember there was a great woman called Caroline Marland. She's still alive. Mm-hmm. Um, she was the head of the Guardian in London and um and Irish and uh, Capital Radio. And she was one of my great heroes. Uh, she came back here. She was sitting on the board of Bank of Ireland. I don't know where she is uh, now. But she told me once that one of the biggest lessons she learned in her life was um, looking at her male colleagues who would spend 90 percent on effort and 10 percent on self-promotion. And she would be spending, you know, 110 percent. Yeah. And effort. at the time I had a French boss and I was sitting in London. I was getting in at the crack of dawn, as I say, five to nine, a classic overworker, <laughs> hoping he would notice. And he called me, at, you know, the crack of dawn every morning to ask me about my budgets. He, he micromanaged me from from Paris. So I kept thinking, you know, about what she told me. And I set aside every single week from three o'clock onwards uh, some time to send him a very short email to say, this is what's worked in my week. This is what's been good. And I started to promote myself, not bombing, you know, very much telling him warts and all because he'd see through it. Yes. If I was telling him. So I just started to tell him, you know, the successes. And he stopped calling me in the morning. He started saying how great it was that, you know, he didn't have to manage me anymore because I was so forthcoming in terms of giving him information. And I was promoted three times sure. in that business. So I kind of feel... Sometimes just listening to somebody talking to you can change the trajectory of your own life. Wow. 
Wow. Do you know, I have wanted to talk to you for so long. Can I give you your opening line? Of, give, you know it, obviously, but for <laughs> our listeners. So your opening line on one of your websites, so this is norcasey.com, is um, welcome, first of all. And then you said, I have a reputation as a dragon, but are, I'm much nicer in real life. Why did you need to say that? <laughs> because people see a television persona. You know, I haven't been on Dragon's Den since Richard died. I did the last um, series after Richard passed away. And I was so sorry to hear that. Yeah. yeah, it was a difficult time. I didn't feel I could continue in Dragon's Den. More, not the television component, but more that I couldn't really ethically continue to invest in people when I didn't have energy for myself, let alone for them. But. But I think that because the television, you know, Dragon's Den in particular creates a persona, uh, which is very much, um, you know, they used to laugh at me when I'd be saying, hi, how are you? And they'd say, no, you're not allowed to say that. You're not allowed to speak to them until it's your turn to, you know, question them. And I'd be always saying afterwards, give me a call, I'll help you. I'll, you know, but all of that is edited out. And it's natural. That's the persona of the dragon. You know, you're supposed to be quite ferocious yeah. and to glare and stare and, you know, say these things when you, like, I do feel that um, afterwards people always thought I was formidable. It's a phrase that they often use about women, um, which my father used to use, by the way, formidable women in the household. Um, and it took ages and people would always meet me and say, God, you're not anything like what I thought you were going to be like. You know, I went on to do uh, the takeover and that kind of helped Great a business. little bit. Great Work, show. Yeah, yeah, working with the travellers, young travellers who are all doing phenomenally well. One of them in particular, Anne Rose, I have to give a little <laughs> shout out in Blanchettstown. She was the one who was designing and she's back designing brilliant uh, Facebook page. So. Uh, working with travellers for a year to help young women um, to try and develop their own business. All those things helped people to see me as a little bit more me. Yes. And um, and I, home of the year. Celebrity home of the year <laughs> yes. winner. You're home, Nora. <laughs> Again, I interviewed Declan O'Donnell talking about the brand new series of home of the year, the third series. And what he what jumped out for him about celebrity home of the year was you. And he said, you see this very talented, inspirational role model, which you are to many of us. And then you look at her home and you might think it's going to be one way but it's this beautiful welcoming stunning warm and in parts girly home very girly yeah and I just thought well, that was a lovely thing for him to say and I think look you know I think when some so Richard died um, you know not in the house but he was dying before he left to go to the hospice he was in the hospice for a short period of time so I had a real problem afterwards trying to feel comfortable you know when you go to bed at night it should be you're a little refuge from the world where you can relax. And I used to lie in the bed thinking of the nights that Richard, you know, I'd kind of checked to see if he was still breathing. And so it was not a nice house to be in. The, and I know it's only bricks and mortar and it no, sounds it's, ridiculous. It's a home is different to bricks and mortar. Yeah, the energy in the house was not good. And you're so, you were so you and, your, and Dara. You're and so Dara was 12. And, you know, I, I, we were the opposite to one another because Dara wanted to cling on to the house because he felt it was his dad and memories everywhere. Um, me, I just never felt comfortable. I used to, there's a nice courtyard and, you know, I just remember all the times coming home from long, long days of um, chemotherapy and, you know, him sitting outside trying to, you know, take some soup or anything that he could. Uh, and it, it was not comfortable. It wasn't a comfortable place in my head. And at the same time, there was a bit of inertia about, about leaving and his uh, wardrobe was full of his clothes. I left his locker with, you know, his watch and his... I used to charge his iPhone every night. Oh, God. I know. But I don't know. You can't ever afterwards beat yourself up about those things. It just was what it was. Yeah. I didn't feel I could face any of it. And I guess in 
not the run up to the home of the year, but I always remember his anniversary and it was his third anniversary and I wanted to give myself a gift and I phoned this woman, Sasha Sykes. I hope she's listening to me. She has um, a website called Farm 21 and she makes this beautiful furniture where she brings the outside in like bales of hay and perspex. I'd seen her in the National Gallery and I said, you've never met me. You don't know me from Adam. And I told her, it's the day of my husband's anniversary. I want you to make some beautiful furniture for me. When I say she made this beautiful acrylic table, which she embedded rose petals in, took her nearly the guts of two years. She made this other beautiful table that she put in peonies for me. Absolutely gorgeous. The, wi- the glass, the perspex with the white flowers. Yeah. <gasps> beautiful. I beautiful. saw it. it, was, you, it was, we saw yeah. it in the TV show. And she made these big lavender perspex boxes for me. And it was all flowers and girly. And, you know, I just thought that's that's the moment when I said, OK, I'm going to change things. I bought a new bed. Somebody who had, I'd met her actually in the oncology department. We never knew each other. Just a chance encounter in Dundrum. I had a coffee with her, but she's a wonderful woman. And um, she said, get rid of the bed. And I had never had a notion of getting, she said, get rid of the bed right now. And I ordered a new bed. Never knew there were so many things that you had to choose in beds, by the way, (laughs) and mattresses. Um, But it changed everything. And then I changed all of the furniture into white furniture and the art on the walls. I'm a massive lover of art. My basement is jammed. I just don't have a house big enough to put it all out. But I just started buying beautiful images of women like, you know, I think if anyone saw the programme, Coco Chanel looks down on me um, by a fantastic, amazing artist by Katerina Jajuska. She's just got a um, she's actually at the Origin Gallery right now. Amazing woman that's overcome huge uh, trials in her own life. But she did um, I've lovely Elizabeth Taylor, Mia Farrow, um, all these stunning portraits by her. Um, Orla Debris, cross dress is a beautiful, beautiful piece. I have Nuttall, I've Lulu Lebrocke, I've got, you know, Googie. So for me, my house is a bit of a canvas for the art, you know, and, and I love the fact that even the furniture is now part of the art. It's not a big house, by the way. When they said we have to film in three rooms, I said, that's probably your lot, actually, because <laughs> there's nothing else in it. Like, it's just, it is the smallest house, but I love it. I really love it. I love the energy now. It's so stunning, but it's also <laughs> something you're not frightened to go in and sit down. You do, it's welcoming. Well, it's very comfortable. Yeah. yeah. And I think, look, this is me and Dara and um, the kitchen. The other thing that I changed is I used to have Richard's portrait. Um, PJ Lynch, who's the current poet laureate for children, uh, is an amazing, amazing man. We knew him very well and he did a wonderful portrait of Richard when he was, um, he was at the RHA. He did a wonderful portrait of Richard when he was dying. And I had it in the kitchen and I used to say to myself, sure, I had a coffee with that man every morning of my life. Why wouldn't I want to sit and have a coffee with him and, you know, have him in front of me? And my mum kept saying, I don't think that's healthy. I think it would be better if you put that portrait in the hallway. And when you felt you wanted to look at it, you could. Now, bear in mind, my hallway, which I hadn't realised until about six months ago, was absolutely jam packed with pictures of Richard. And, you know, somebody said to me, are you aware that it looks like a shrine as you pass through that bit of the house? Um, And I wasn't consciously aware of it. So I kind of made different decisions, not... Like Richard will never be erased from my life and his beautiful portrait is there in the hall now. Um, But I do think it helped me 
enormously to move on, yeah. you know. Your mom sounds amazing. She's amazing. <laughs> a really good interview. Was it the Indo and she a picture of both of you together? She had a chapter in my book, Spark. And I used to turn up for signers and say, yeah, we loved your book. But Where's we your mom? Love your mother. Yeah. <laughs> I, she became quite famous. I was looking at her and um, she's a great face anyway, but also it sounds like a great woman. I mean, you, you know, you, you said that she got you through some of the toughest times. Yeah. Um, and she put you together when you were falling apart. How is she like, how did she do that and where did she get she, those skills? So firstly, she was a nurse as well. And um, and I think we're tremendously alike. Um, my father died when Dara was six months old, suddenly in his sleep. Sorry. And she always says to me, there are some things a mum should never really have to pass on to their daughter. But actually, I learned a lot from how she dealt with, you know, you see it from the perspective of I'm his daughter and I miss him. But I think as time went on, I could see it from the perspective of he was the love of her life. And, you know, she had six children with him and um, he was now gone. And how she went on to study philosophy and she relearned the Irish language and went to study German. She became a counsellor, worked for Childline. I mean, this is all in her later years. She worked in the Cara Cheshire home in the Phoenix Park. Um, So she never, like my mother just doesn't know the meaning of the word retirement. You know, it just... My my mum's still nursing. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Good. But she's like, my mum is past the uh, life expectancy of most people. She'll murder me uh, and you after me. (laughs) But she looks really well. You can tell she honestly looks so She's past what the average life expectancy might... might, um, She sometimes says I'm allowed to say that. But she does Pilates every week. She does mindfulness yoga with Sister Stan down where I went to school in Hope Street. So um, if I said to her tomorrow, she would go to London for the weekend, she'd have her backpack standing <laughs> at the door waiting for me. You know, it was only a few years ago she went, she flew on her own to Hong Kong and met me there and we did Cambodia and Burma together. I remember she's, when you did that. I didn't know yeah, you met your mum. Oh, wow. She's incredible. And, and you know, in our family, I always say to my son, this is quite different to other grannies. Yes. We fight over who's going to get her. You know, there's a kind of a, you know, oh, it's Christmas it's my turn this year. And I was saying, you know what, in most households, Dara, people are fighting to see who's going to take Granny for the Christmas. You know? <laughs> so it is good. She's 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 a wonderful person. I think a bit of me, like I always think I'd love to be, I feel like an immigrant sometimes in a young person's world. I'm much more comfortable talking to people who are open to new ideas. And um, and I think my mum spends so much of her time with young people. She's no time really. I hope she doesn't me for saying this for babies. But she loves all her grandchildren when they get to be teenagers. They live with her. Like, I mean, you couldn't. my mother's house is constantly full of the teenagers who love her. Wow. Yeah. Oh, to the shunning of their parents, they will run to my mother. Isn't She's on Facebook amazing? with them. And like, if, if we want to know what's going on, my mum is friends on Facebook with all of them. <laughs> Rather than us. <laughs> That's great though, isn't it? Yeah. But you know what? I, I honestly, the older I get it, the more I think women are amazing. And your mom, my mom, are the type of women who I think make us. I think yeah. they're the, the ones that, as you said, put us together. And I'm, I'm delighted that you, you have She's your... Bo- so I just like the International Women's Day theme yeah. this year is be bold for change. That's right? It. And I think being bold... Uh, I I have another thing that I say all the time. I've just been using it on social media. Well-behaved women rarely make history. So to be bold for me, when we grew up in Ireland, um, everyone will recognise this. You know, bold is when you were naughty. That's it. So, and it wasn't until I went to Scotland that I understood that actually nobody understood the idea that being naughty was to be bold. You know, I'd be saying, it's very bold of you. And they would see bold as something that was great. Yes. <laughs> like I grew up with, that's very bold. You know, it was a very Irish <laughs> saying. 
likes, you know. So I kind of think like I've got into so much trouble when I do the hashtag be bold and people are going, why would you be encouraging people to behave, <laughs> you know, naughty or badly? And I say, no, I mean, be brave, you know, don't necessarily follow the rules. In the true world sense <laughs> yes. of the phrase. And Nora, <laughs> now, do you feel that doing this academy is giving back? Do you think that it is sharing like you're sharing with us today? We've got two of the four secrets, but no. Is that what it is? No. What is it? not. Because I get more out of it. Really? Like it's not, you know, every single time there are things I do that drain me of energy. You know, I can turn up at some gigs and I walk out and I think, oh, my God, I'm half the woman I was when I walked in that door. There are other things I do when I feel I'm twice the person I was when I walk away. And the Academy, like, I just love that. The energy in the room is palpable. Talking to these women, I mean, the stories they have told it would make the hair stand up in the back of your neck. The honesty of telling somebody really what it's like sometimes when you're trying to make your way in life. It's just so powerful and, and so rare. You never get that when you go somewhere. Everybody wants to tell you they're all brilliant and they've discovered some great strategy in life. So so sitting talking to somebody in front of an audience of phenomenal women is just magical for me. I, I feel the same way when I go to kids in school. I, I try and go out of my way once a month to do kids because their brains are so open to all the possibilities in life. And we don't teach them properly about, you know, a lot of kids in social disadvantaged areas. My phrase to them is, if you, you know, don't get a boss, you know, be your own boss. Yeah. You know, when you can't get employment or it's difficult, it's within all of us. And particularly in people like me who grow up in, you know, a more disadvantaged background, we're hungry for it. We probably have stronger entrepreneurial skills than, you know, people who grow up in privileged society who aren't hungry for it, who feel entitled. I can see your eyes. I can see the passion in you there when you're talking about that. <laughs> Another thing, how do you look so good? Right. The more I look at you. Would in, you stop? No, no, really, seriously, the more you, you look back, you know, and you look at pictures each year and that that picture I'm thinking now with you and your mom, you both look really good. It, is it just do you have natural, natural good genes? Do you look after yourself? I mean, you. Can you share your secret about what you do most mornings and the lashings of rain? What you do? <laughs> I run every morning. <laughs> I run for so I try. I would love to do thirty minutes, but I never have the time. So I say, look, I'm not going to beat myself up. I'll do my twenty minutes and. I have a treadmill in my office as well. So if I don't want to go out and face the rain, which I think is more badass to go out and face the rain. It's bold. Yeah, it's very bold <laughs> to face the rain. I, I like running in the rain, partly because nobody recognises me. And, you know, like, and I'm not saying that because I'm some big celebrity. It's just who wants to be recognised when you have no makeup on and you have a big red face. <laughs> no, thanks. <laughs> and they're saying, she's failed miserably, hasn't she, that one that used to be on the TV. Uh, so, I, yeah, I, I like we the rain. We think that, but really most people are like, fair bloody Jews running in that <laughs> weather. I do run every morning if if I can. I um, I was very sick last year. I, I, I Everybody already knows the it. Append- I ignored. This the yeah. And I actually was in a studio about three doors away from here when on the fifth day of rip-roaring pains in my tummy I had this huge massive pain and they were saying John, want a glass of water? I was doubled over with it but it actually ruptured then and it still took me to the following day to turn up at hospital and by then it was it was kind of packed into the bottom quarter of my body it had ruptured and he said all the pus and everything's in a kind of a sack but overnight my colon ripped and it went into my whole abdomen so it was just Jeannie I can't even Mac. tell you I don't even know how my friends visited me because firstly I had pints and pints of pus coming out of me every day all day the nurses were putting cocoa beans under the bed to take the smell away I had wound drains I was two months I thought it never healed to be perfectly honest so 
Anyway, I what, learned my what, lesson. What, 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 yeah, that's yeah. what I was going to say. It's kind of, people said to me out it's a male trait. Um, I'm not sure it is. I think it's just something that happens to us when we feel we've no other option. I was doing something called the Festival of Women, which is a much bigger version of the Academy, which I was so... You know, I can't be sick. I can't be sick. There's no question of me being sick. You just drive on. It's only a bit of food poisoning. Like, it's not going to bother you. And, you know, I felt strongly that there was no room in my life to be sick. And therefore, if I could just do mind over matter, it wouldn't happen. But, you know, there you go. I I think afterwards, I was very cross at myself because, firstly, it took two months of my life um, away. You know, my poor husband died of something that was incurable um, that he couldn't prevent. I could have prevented all of that if I just put my hand up on day one. I would have had, what, 24, 48 hours downtime. A simple little snip of the appendix instead of doing what I did, which was the stupidest thing. So Now the work life, what changed since then? Um, so I suppose on a private basis, you know, um, not something I've told anyone. <laughs> I consciously decided that I would do things that made me uh, be still, right? I kind of, even in my book, wrote about how mindfulness isn't for me and can't stand all that, you know, sitting around staring at your navel sort of stuff. But I actually have turned a complete circle on that. So I find a way every single day of being still in my mind. Now, sometimes, and I'm really terrible at it, I paint. My kitchen table could be covered in paint and I paint and paint and paint and... Um, I don't care what it looks like, but for those hours, I'm just completely lost in painting. Uh, although I run, I tend to listen to music while I'm running. So my brain isn't really so. So walking is one of the great things that I came out. Of. And also I wasn't capable of running in the immediate aftermath. So going for long walks where there's that rote of just your legs walking means your brain is sometimes released to sort of so. With no music? With no music, okay. nothing. Just me walking and, you know, allowing my brain to be still for a while. That actually has helped me hugely. I've said no to, so I don't have a real problem saying no. Yeah. I used to actually say to people, do you know what? What's the worst that can happen? Say yes, because it'll bring open new opportunities. And, and I've always done that, but found myself sitting in all sorts of committees and boards and doing things that I didn't really want to do, but I just felt, oh, you shouldn't say no. But I've said no to loads of things since this happened. To start with, I had a very good um, reason. The first few months I was actually um, quite ill still. I was recovering um, and that was coming up to Christmas. So apart from my own things, I said no things. I said no to television projects um, where I might have said yes in the past. I just felt that's not right for me. Um, it requires too much of me and my energy. And people think nothing of saying to me, will you have a coffee? I'm drowning at the moment in messages from people who want to start their own business and, you know, people who get stuck in the career and I look at you and would you have a coffee with me? And they probably think it's unreasonable for me not to have a coffee with them. But if they only kind of understood that at this point, my office just told me there were 53 messages on the phone that I hadn't responded to this week. And I would normally have a nervous breakdown about that. I would say to myself, by five o'clock today, I need to go back to all of those people. I need to find the time to spend time with them. I was running myself ragged in my spare time. And I don't mean I don't have a lot of spare time. So I just took a conscious decision that maybe some of those people don't need me um, as much as I think. Um, maybe it would be OK to say that I could go away for a weekend with my son or, you know, spend time going... <clears throat> 
for something to eat or just going to the pleasure of going to a movie and, and not worrying about something for with your phone off for an hour or two. So, yeah, I've liked I've liked this new me for the last few months, actually. She sounds pretty amazing. <laughs> I'm looking at all the other stuff that you've done and are still doing. And I, I know you're rushing off to a meeting now and to have that little bit of time is gold, isn't yeah. it? And it's a good lesson for the rest of us listening yeah, yeah. and learning from you. So the, the what are you most excited about then about uh, Planet Academy? I'm most excited actually that after spending five years doing the academy, I suddenly realised I needed to do more. So I created a wonderful um, learning and development digital platform called Planet Woman. It's in beta mode. It's taken me two years. I thought it would take me six months. But I think the good thing is I had focus group, excuse me, focus groups of women in New York and in London, as well as here in Ireland. I think almost every woman of any um, position of influence has been involved in helping me develop it. It's been a real labour of all women that I know at the top in in all sorts of different walks of life have helped me to develop it. It's phenomenal. There is nothing like it out there. I think for the first time in my life, I have found something where the train hasn't actually left the bloody station. <laughs> I mean, every time I see a new train, I think, oh, that's great. I should have got in at this. But it, it, and it's not it just fits me because it is me. It's about helping women in organisations. It will eventually. We're working with Enterprise Ireland to help to develop it for female owned businesses. But at the moment, it's really for women in, in those that Mary that I spoke about earlier you know this is going to help her to figure out how she can actually get on in her life how she can go for the job how she's going to compete with John how she's going to work within the culture of the organisation how to find the person to sponsor her you know so it goes back to the root cause of what holds women back so all of the learning materials are to help them overcome it's only specifically related to those issues that hold women back. It's not about the whole world. So it's only about that tiny slice of learning that is missing in our lives, which relates to what holds women back. I do think this is going to revolutionise not just women, but also businesses. They don't want to be flying on one wing. They all want to be flying on both wings. Apart from anything else, there's regulation coming down the line and they're going to have to sort out um, gender balance. And then I have people like Accenture, KPMG, PwC, McKinsey, all of these phenomenal um, organisations have produced reports to say that actually gender balanced businesses outperform their competitors on every metric, every metric on the planet. So who wouldn't want it's not about women, but who wouldn't want a business that had fabulous men and equally fabulous women? And I think Planet Woman is that. We're working with six partners. I'm overly cautious about this, and that's the woman in me. Um, I am overly cautious. I've been, you know, I had a wonderful group that have been working with me for the first two months of the year, looking at the website and critiquing it. All very high-powered women, and I'm grateful to them. We launched in beta mode at the end of January with six partners where all the women in their organisations can access it free to give me the feedback. This isn't about women in Ireland. This is women the world over. You know, we might be at 10, 12 percent in terms of women participation aboard. The US is struggling phenomenally in this space. Uh, The UK is probably at 26 percent now. It's really only the Scandinavian countries that have cracked it, you know. No, I give the website there because one final question. Planetwoman.com and planetwomanacademy.com is the academy website. March 24th, RDS. Love to see you there. One last question. I'm looking at you. In order to get more pictures on that school wall beside you and and Joan Burton and your school, millennials coming in, a lot of talk about them. Again, for some, it's just another generation. For others, it's more than that. They really want that work-life balance. But are they and how do we get them 
to be you, to be, to have that drive. Is it either inherent? Can it be taught? Is it something people can go to the academy and get tips on and advice and stories from other women? Or are they built differently? No, I do think, you know, there's there are things called the elementary studies. I mean, young girls going to school with young boys, they have finer motor neuron skills and social skills and they learn very quickly to be quiet and diligent rather than um, to run like wild animals down the corridor that boys do. So it's that school schooling actually holds women back in later life. There's a wonderful psychologist, Carol Dweck, which a lot of people know. And she said, if life was one long school report, women would be the undisputed rulers of the world. And and that's true. Women are outperforming men in schooling, in academia, in almost all of those metrics in terms of medicine or any of those areas. But it's when they go into real life situations that they really struggle because that's what I was trying to say before, which I, I hope I got across, that things that were seemingly small as they're growing up, the differences between women and men, and they are small, they become much more magnified when they go into the workplace. What could you do in schooling? I, When I talk to kids in school, you know, most of your entrepreneurial traits are laid down by the time you're 18, 19, at most 23. Your brain has already learned those things. So that's why, you know, if you're an immigrant um, or you're a child from a associate as a bachelor, but you're, you're points ahead of everyone else. If you failed in an exam, for instance, as a kid, you're streets ahead of other people because you've learned that early. If you don't fit in with the gang, you know, which is a nice thing, I think, for kids to hear sometimes if you're not wearing the same clothes and you're not cool and you're not in the inset, well, you're the entrepreneur, the rest of them are the employees. And that's OK. The world needs employees and they'll follow the leader, you know, whereas you are the one who's prepared to stand out and be yourself. So so kids in our schools need to hear some of that. Yes. They need to know that sometimes they, you know, when you get into your 20s, there's no point in you saying I'll go back and get that grit and determination that I should have had when I was, you know, 16 or 17. And they also need to know that, you know, the leaving cert, which my son is doing at the moment, it's only one test and not a good one, a disgracefully bad one. It's only one terrible, awful test of your intellect, which you will never again in your whole life have to do. You'll never have to regurgitate something that you've learned by rote in the shortest possible time, which is more a test of speed writing and short term memory than anything else. It is the most ridiculous way of us judging children. And when I see the stress that, you know, my kid and all of the other kids go through, I just want to wrestle it and say, in modern society, there is no place for this nonsense. We shouldn't be putting our children through this ridiculous, awful experience. You know, the fact that they've just been through the mocks, I think, God almighty, isn't it enough to go through it once? Yes. Without you preparing them to go through it once by giving them the same awful experience twice? I mean, I really feel quite strongly if I was Minister for Education. No, but really, where else <laughs> in life do you have to write? It's, Never, it's like from it's academia, three hours in one go in a job, in a yes. day-to-day job. And it, it, it just ruins children's natural ability to want to learn, to have that hunger and curiosity that I had. Um, I don't think the Leaving Cert was anything like what it is now when I was growing up or this absolute obsession about points and getting to university courses. And by the way, so many kids don't even turn up. You look at a Friday and most of our university departments and places empty as it is on Monday mornings, you know. Um, so I just think sometimes this over academical, you know, approach to learning and how our children develop, it suppresses the things that they're naturally good at. It doesn't enhance it. You know, I'm a great believer in that whole, you know, 40 
hour rule. But, you know, if your child is brilliant at geography or history or maths, then, you know, let them just develop that. That's where they're going to be in their lives. You know, let them be experts in that field. They don't have to be mediocre in eight subjects. Yeah. <laughs> and talking of enhancing and improving the website again, Planet Academy. Pla- PlanetWomanAcademy.com um, for the Academy and um, Planet um, Woman. Beam me up. Planet, PlanetWoman.com. Uh, when it's eventually open for business, it is in beta mode now. Um, I'm dying to show the world it because it's got really cool animations and it's got fantastic video and podcasts. It's not your boring learning. That's not, you know, one person looking at a screen telling you something for an hour. It's just it's exciting. It's taken me a while to do it, but I am excited about it. And if people want to know more, go to the website, have a look. There's, you're going to see all the speakers that are there. The event itself is on Friday, 24th of March and tickets are for sale now. Nora, absolutely. Honestly, could talk to you for a few more hours if only you didn't have a meeting. Brilliant to talk to you. To finally get you in here, I'm thrilled. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. That's it from me, Tara Lockery Grant, and the Lifestyle Show for this week on RTE Radio 1 Extra. The show is produced by Ola McGowan, and you can listen back to our other Lifestyle Show podcasts on rte.ie forward slash lifestyle. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and email us at rtlifestyle at rte.ie. Plus, you can tweet me on at Tara LG. That's Tara with a G-H. Goodbye for now, and if there's anything that you'd like to hear featured on the show, you know where to find us. The Lifestyle Show with Tara Lockery-Grant on RTE Radio 1 Extra. 